From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm James Wilcock. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Today is one of those days where business and politics are overlapping a little bit more than they usually do, particularly in this programme. And that's after we had the latest results from the oil giant Shell. So record profits for the company, almost $40 billion for last year, boosted, of course, by higher oil and gas prices as well. But it's something that is re-sparking the debate around windfall taxes and how companies like these can be making so much money at a time when we're all paying so much more for our energy. The CFO uh, saying that Shell is paying $100 million last year, $500 million of the expectation for this year as well. Overall, the company has said that it expects the bill to be $2.4 billion for windfall taxes in the EU and the UK for 2022. Um, but James, that hasn't stopped a lot of people being very angry about these numbers. No, not at all, Stephen. I mean, when you look back at, say, the mini-budget, at that time, people were talking about this hypothetical hole in the public finances of around $60 billion. So this $40 billion profit is almost the size of the entire hole that was created back when we had the quasi quartering mini-budget. So when you see people like Ed Miliband on the Labour side, the Shadow Business Secretary, saying they would not have the capital energy prices go up by improving, well, increasing the windfall tax on people like Shell, and that is kind of what where they are coming from. It's something the Tory party's ideology has fiercely resisted because they see this as a way of sort of restricting people making profit and investing mm. in where they see best. It gets in the way of the market. But in this backdrop of strikes, you've got the TUC's uh, General Secretary um, this morning saying that it is obscene. And when they are pushing for more wages for their workers, it is a big concern that the government have of looking out of touch. Yeah, I mean, Ed Meliband also been talking about this, saying that it's only right the companies making unexpected windfall profits should pay their fair share as well. Uh, another big number that we're we're talking about today is the number 100, because it is 100 days since Rishi Sunak uh, has come to power. A new poll from YouGov in the Times newspaper saying that 72% of people believe he won't be Prime Minister after the next election, which means we're on a count up and potentially a count down as well. But, I mean, so with polling, I always sort of whip out my disclaimer of like, it's only one poll. Polling changes massively and it's important to look at, say, the average. And from Rishi Sunak's perspective, he might point to the fact that he's actually done double the amount of days in office as Liz Trust managed. So in terms of those numbers, he's still not, got quite yeah. a lot to be there. It's not a great record, though, I suppose. So 100 days in, what does Rishi Sunak have to show uh, for his time in office? We've had pledges for integrity, accountability and professionalism, a large number of E's. Uh, and some of the most dire economic forecasts Britain uh, has seen this century. Um, it, our UK politics editor, Alex Morales, is with us in studio. Alex, great to see you. I feel like it's been at least three prime ministers since I've seen you. Um, speaking of speaking of timing, when we this hundred days obsession, 
it's something that I have to say, I always think of the West Wing when we talk about it. Why are we so obsessed with 100 Days? Well, I guess it's a, it's a time to sort of look back and see um, what the new prime minister has done and whether they set a new direction for the country, whether, whether they seem to have a vision for how they operate the country. Um, in Sunak's case, it's kind of hard because he came into office um, and, and the reason the Tory party elected him was basically to clear up the mess left by his predecessors. Always a great so, uh, so menu if, to hand out. If you take that as the measuring point, um, you could argue that, well, he has calmed the market nerves. Um, you know, we, we saw what Liz trusted to the economy back in um, September, October. Uh, she sent the pound down to a record low. The bond market, the, the Bank of England had to sort of bail out parts of the bond market. Um, so Sunak's come in, he's unpicked a whole bunch of the measures that Liz Truss um, brought in that had roiled the market. And from that point of view, things have steadied. But in terms of setting a grand vision for the, for the country, I think, I think um, you'll find that many in his party think he hasn't really got there yet. Um, and in fact, many of them on the back benches are urging him to cut taxes, which is exactly what got um, Liz Truss into trouble in the first place. So, I mean, to borrow a phrase, this kind of strong and stable leadership that Rishi sort of brought back sort of quoting Theresa May, like, is, is that pleasing the back benches compared to Liz Truss? You talk about that idea coming back. What can he offer them in his upcoming budget? I'm not sure many people would descri- describe his leadership as strong at the moment, perhaps stable. That, that That's that's definitely something that he's We're brought. halfway there. But he, exactly. Um, in terms of strong leadership, I mean, he's shown... It It sort of depends how you how you measure it. I mean, he's... He's given in to his backbenchers on quite a few things. That could be a sign of weakness, but that could also be a sign that he's actually quite pragmatic. He, he picks the battles he's going to fight. And and the issues he's, he's sort of U-turned on have tended to be issues that he's not particularly wedded to, that he's inherited from his predecessors. So like an onshore wind being an example. Um, but it... it in terms of going forward, we've got a budget on March the 15th. There are, there's a growing clamour from the Tory backbenchers for him to cut taxes. He and Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, have, have been saying pretty firmly they're not going to cut taxes. I mean, maybe they'll do some tinkering around some smaller taxes, but it seems like they're not going to cut taxes. They're probably going to save any tax cuts for either later in the year or early next year in the run-up to a general election. Um, but that's going to leave um, many of his backbenchers disgruntled for now because, because they just don't... They, they don't like the fact that we have a conservative government that's put um, taxes up to the highest level uh, since, I think, World War II. Mm. Um, and for them, high taxes is very unconservative. There's a lot of kind of rumblings from the backbenches uh, happening, at least quietly. Um, one of the big things, of course, that so many people are focused on is strikes. We're in this lacuna between two sets of rail strikes today. But yesterday was a very big day with that, you know, biggest strike action in, in, in 10 years, more than 10 years. Where does Rishi Sunak have have room for manoeuvre or a potential improvement on the strikes front? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, again, he and he and Jeremy Hunt have shown little sign of changing tack. I mean, a large part of the demands from various unions are for the pay agreements already agreed for the current tax year, which which is actually going to end very shortly. For those to be increased, um, they've uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have both said, "Well, no, we can't unpick that. Those decisions have been made, but what we can do is look at." Um, next year's pay agreement, um, which which d- 
doesn't go to down be, very well with a lot it, of unions. Exactly, it doesn't go down with well with unions, but also it's it's something. So while the tax year starts in April, um, what you'll find is these agreements only get reached in June, July, and they end up backpating a lot of pay. So so you're you're, you're going to get a whole lot of um, workers who are very very disgruntled that not only have they not got the increased pay they wanted for the current year that we're in now, but they're going to get to mid year and they won't even have the pay increase they <laughs> they're due for that year. It's worth saying in that YouGov poll as well. One of the things they asked is how is the government doing on strikes and seventy two percent said badly. So that's, you know, that's not a great backdrop either if, if there seems to be such a grand sort of public opinion in one direction. I was going to say, so we, I read with interest, your reporting as like the UK Gov team on Isaac Levida, the Tory party strategist, saying it's a very narrow path to victory for the Conservative next election, but it is a path. Given everything we've said about kind of a weak and stable government, sort of a very bleak economic picture and the news agenda dominated by strikes and sort of internal division, how narrow is that like narrow path? <laughs> well, I think, I think you've set out the dilemma pretty clearly. I mean, the economic outlook is pretty bleak as well. We had the IMF earlier this week saying that the UK, I think the UK is uh, predicted to be the only G20 economy that's going to shrink um, this year. So, so, uh, and economy is the thing that Rishi Sunak prides himself on managing. So, you know, he set these five uh, priorities. One of them is to return the economy to growth. One's to halve inflation. Um, and there's a third one on the economy as well. I think it's to get debt falling. Um, so, three of his five priorities are to do with the economy. Um, in terms of the narrow path, I mean, l- lots of conservatives are talking about this being reminiscent of um, the John Major years in the 1990s. And and really, the key question is, well, are we talking about pre 92? John Major who managed to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat or are we talking about 97 John Major who who sunk to the party's biggest defeat in whatever it was eons and at what point does the grey puppet appear on television of John Major versus Rishi Sunak once more again <laughs> <laughs> well uh, let's hope let's hope we don't see Rishi Sunak in his underwear like um in in that uh, the spitting image in the in the so, 1990s some searing memories <laughs> that I think coming back um for for many people Another issue that we know is still dominating and we're hearing more and more uh, feeding into those backbench rumblings is the resolution of the Northern Ireland Protocol issues. We've had all these incremental signs that talks are progressing. Um, our reporting showing that those, you know, they're close to a touching distance of a deal on, on the customs checks issues. Still a big question over what the European Court of Justice role will have. How big a problem is this going to be for Rishi Sunak? Is this another situation where the ERG pop up their ugly head and create a huge problem for the Prime Minister? Well, uh, so, so two, th- two things on that. No offence to the ERG, I'm, their heads are all <laughs> lovely. Two things on that. Firstly, um, it seems solutions are a lot closer than the government or the EU letting on, um, letting on publicly. Um, that's at least uh, the reporting of my colleagues. Um, seems to suggest that they're in what, what everyone's called calling the tunnel, um, which is sort of that final round of very intense negotiations where they hammer out all the details and lots of very complicated um, issues. Um, Now, neither the EU nor the UK has admitted they're in this phase of the talks. Um, But... Um, when you come out of the tunnel, there are still going to be political issues to resolve, as you as you flicked at before. And and for Rishi Sunak, the two big the two big obstacles to getting any deal through are the DUP in Northern Ireland, um, who've set uh, seven. Don't ask me to name them, but they've set seven conditions on what what this deal needs to do before they'll accept it. Um, and then there's the ERG, which are the sort of very Brexiteer right wing of of the Conservative Party. Um, now, I, I suspect if the DUP can accept something, then the ERG will go along with that. Uh, but but it's, it's going to be a very delicate task for Sunak to sell what he gets, because you, you, you can bet that it won't, it won't clearly cross mm-hmm. the line on all seven of those things that the DUP wants. But it may sort of 
be into the blurry Venn diagram that might just about be acceptable to them. And, and it's this question also of pr- essentially providing everyone ladders to climb down from their positions that they've built up so strongly. And this is what has been the theme of how ev- all progress has been made in the Brexit process is that they, you know, we reach a conclusion, someone's very unhappy, there's a minor tweak, and then everyone goes home at least mildly satisfied with what happened. So there and, is an element of, of it. And also at least mildly unhappy. Yes, well, I mean, such is the nature of deal making. Indeed, exactly. That is a good summation. Uh, Alex Morales, our UK politics editor, thank you very much for joining us uh, and showing us some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, if I can borrow one of your phrases. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, Caroline Hepker, you're in a different seat from where you usually are today. Uh, that's because you've been bringing us a really important interview. You've been speaking to the UK's business minister. Yeah, so this week um, was an important deadline week. Um, Britain brought in last March this new bit of legislation. Overseas owners of property in the UK had until Tuesday night to declare the beneficial owners of any property that they owned on this new register. But actually, almost a third of these previously anonymous owners, that's almost 13,000 organisations, have yet to comply with this new legislation. So I was speaking to the business Minister Martin Callanan, and I asked him what the consequences now of failure to disclose are going to be. Enforcement action will effectively be starting um, as of next week. You know, Companies House will be uh, attempting to contact these overseas entities to say that you are now non-compliant. These are the consequences uh, of that uh, and give them a further opportunity to comply with the law. So that was the business minister, Martin Callanan. Look, Stephen, I think what is hugely important in this is that the government warned that there were going to be severe penalties. Martin Callan, again, has underlined that there's going to be enforcement action. But the proof is in in the pudding. It's in the enforcement. HMRC has already told us just a few weeks ago that it's um, finding it extremely difficult to collect about 5% of all taxes owed. at £42 billion. It's a huge sum of money um, because, you know... enforcement is so tricky. Lord Callan says that there are 120 staff who are looking into this property issue. It's sort of meant to turn the leaf on London grad. Interesting. And how exactly 
did the conversation around enforcement go? So, um, look, I think he was trying to put the tough message of the government across saying that action would start next week. But then more broadly, also this week, you've had Transparency International. Now, they do this very well-respected look at... um, the perceptions of corruption in all the countries around the world, or at least most of them. Britain has tumbled from 11th in that league, admittedly, you know, quite high up, down seven places to 18th. This over political and spending scandals, so very much tied to the government itself. You know, you could perhaps think of Tory chairman Nadim Zahawi and his tax affairs on this one. So I asked the business minister about whether this is actually a major setback in terms of the perceptions of corruption in the UK. I've previously in the European Parliament, I've met and uh, chatted to a lot of politicians from other countries, both in Europe and around the world. And in my experience, the UK public sphere is uh, is one of the cleanest and, and most transparent in the world. And uh, of course, there's always more we can do. I'm not saying we're perfect, but nevertheless, I think we have a very good record. And um, you know, British politics is uh, and public life is remarkably free of corruption, in my view. Now, Caroline, I'm sure on a day where we had major strikes and you were speaking to the business ministry yesterday, that must have come up in the conversation. Too. Yeah, of course, I had to throw this into the conversation with Martin and say that I was leaving the interview to dash home to look after children who were not in school because of strikes. He was very sympathetic. But then I did say, does this make Britain uh, uninvestable? It certainly doesn't look good if people can't travel around the country and people can't put their, their children into school for uh, or, you know, essential education lessons. So um, I'm not saying it necessarily damages it, but it certainly doesn't look good to overseas investors. So that was Martin Callanan, uh, the business minister there, speaking to us here on Bloomberg Radio. Really interesting. I mean, he was very game. He did take a lot of questions. We did quite a bit of probing into this register of beneficial owners. But I think the other thing to highlight again is just... It's the dance of the seven veils. A lot of businesses who own property in the UK have then named the beneficial owners as overseas entities listed in, you know, the British Virgin Islands, places like this or the Isle of Man and so on. So, yeah, it's kind of peeling back the layers of the onion to understand who really owns property in Britain. Okay, Caroline, thanks very much. We'll send you out to get us more top interviews (laughs) for the programme. It's interesting, Stephen. Uh, that move by the government comes after a report showing that a net outflow of more than 1,000 high net worth individuals from the UK in 2022. Now, obviously, a lot of those high net worth individuals would be the kinds of people who would own property from overseas. Bloomberg's Charlie Wells is here for some more of that story. Charlie, what did that report tell us? Well, some millionaires are moving on. That's kind of the big takeaway here. Um, So the citizenship advisory firm Henley & Partners put out this report, and it showed a net outflow of 1,400 people with a wealth of a million dollars or more in 2022. Now, this is a really interesting data set because these people, as we have been talking about, are difficult to track. But this firm looks at investment migration program statistics. They do interviews with advisors. Advisors, they look at media reports and real estate transactions, crucial, that real estate transaction data, um, to figure out where these people are going. Okay, and where are they going? Well, that's a really good question. It's, again, difficult to state. But when you look at some, say, um, you know, citizenship by investment programs, you can see that there seems to be an interest in some Mediterranean countries that do have these controversial golden visa programs. Also, Bloomberg put out this really good story earlier this week about JP Morgan. And basically what they show in this piece is that in 2015, at JP Morgan's Frankfurt headquarters, no one made more than a million euros. 
2019, there were nine people. 2021, that number rose to 81. Whereas in London, high earners at JP Morgan's operation here, the growth was just 4%. And so what we're seeing is a lot of other European capitals producing millionaires and potentially attracting them. So that golden visa program, the UK ended its one after the Ukraine war. But what you just said there is kind of almost a Brexit story. So is this like a post-pandemic thing? What, why? What would make all these people move? So on? there certainly seems to be correlation, not necessarily causation. So what you see when you look at Henley & Partners numbers here is that before Brexit, there was a net inflow of millionaires into the UK. After Brexit, you see each year a net outflow. Now, each year, except for during COVID when there was such limited migration. Um, but it is really striking to see that pivot point literally aligns with the Brexit vote. Um, do we know how many are left of so, our, our dear millionaire friends? Yes. So tiny violins and no shortage of millionaires in the United Kingdom. I think anytime you walk around any major city here, you're you know asking yourself who can afford to buy these expensive properties. So oh, the expensive cars. Yes. The ex- the, yeah. All of those assets. So 2.8 million millionaires. That's according to a Credit Suisse wealth report from 2022. So look, a couple thousand leaving. Yes, that is a significant number. Are millionaires evaporating from the United Kingdom? I think that would be pushing it. Now, something we haven't talked about here is taxes. We were talking earlier in the programme to Alex about what the government wants from its budget. Is this a tax problem? Should the government be trying to lower taxes to lure people back? Like, what is that sort of part of the equation here? It's such a fine balance to walk there, right? Because, of course, when these people, when these residents who presumably are upstanding taxpayers, when they leave, the UK government loses that potential revenue. Um, the difficulty, though, is, of course, there's not necessarily this, I would say, sympathy for the rich. I was looking back at a very famous quote from Boris Johnson in 2014 when he says, quote, London is to billionaires what the jungles of Sumatra are to the orangutan. Um, That was 2014. I think we're in a very different moment right now where there is a lot less sympathy towards these people, even if they do potentially bring in in this revenue. I think that idea of wanting to attract a lot of rich people, I feel like that's become more toxic over the years. Yeah, and despite the fact that we, you know, have impatriates regimes being developed by a lot of European countries to give people a, a discount on their taxes as they move uh, to the UK, although that's specifically a, a discount on income taxes. Um, how does this fit into the wider flows of people since the Brexit vote? I very much appreciate that you've uh, taken out one of my favourite expressions from my um, academic times, which is correlation and not causation. Mm. Um, but. Tell me, tell me about kind of what the bigger picture is in, in terms of people's flows. So the trouble here is those flows have been somewhat disrupted, right? So there's a shorter shortage of workers up and down the pay scale. When you look at a report from the Center for European Reform, they show a shortfall of 330,000 workers in the UK. Um, and when we think about that, you know, it might be maybe more service industry roles. It might be more of these agricultural roles that we hear about from business leaders that they're really concerned about. But this points to the fact that up the pay scale, there also seems to be some movement and a net outflow there. Okay, Charlie Wells, thank you very much for talking us through uh, that aspect of this story. Interesting to track those numbers, even if, as you say, it's not always terribly clear who's going where. Unsurprisingly, if the more money you have, the more difficult you are to track, I think, by the sound of what I'm what I'm taking from uh, what you've told us there. Charlie Wells, uh, we appreciate your time uh, on the programme. Um, of course, plenty more happening in the world of politics today. What sort of things are we looking at for, James? Well, so in the House of Commons, the main business this afternoon will be a general debate on LGBTQ History Month, and Charles Walker has an adjournment debate on wild DM. 
media management. Now, I mean, mm, that, the, there's, a, there's a nail biter to tune well, in. Well, I know. Well, the journalists, although, will be hunting from this Rishi Sunak interview happening on Talk TV tonight with Piers Morgan. I mean, that's one way to Michael Milestone of a hundred days. Uh, what I find fascinating about that one, Stephen, is Boris Johnson is set to be on Talk TV tomorrow night with mm. Nadine Dorries, his former cabinet minister. Yes, of course. That, so, is, that will definitely be one to watch as well. In a, a completely um, unrelated pivot, the Lords is talking about apparent decline in the production of children's television programmes um, and what that might mean for public service broadcasting in the UK. Later on, they'll be tackling UK, EU trade and digital currencies as well. Yes, and then not to forget the strikes. Uh, they are still ongoing. There are even more set to come next month, but tomorrow is another strike in the railways, the RMT, and Aslev workers are set to walk out yet again on the Friday, cancelling most trains. And it comes as we know that some of the rail workers are in talks with the government, but Aslev yet are not. So it's funnily, it's gone from one where things were most hardline in negotiations to one where there may be a bit of movement in terms of who might get a deal with the government first and unions. Yeah, and an interesting, in, in the the height of Inside Baseball and the committee, uh, the Public Accounts Committee today is looking at the revamp of the Palace of Westminster and what sort of repairs are needed for it. That's said to be a, a topic of discussion there as well. So that'll be an interesting one uh, to watch as time goes on. Yes, I always find it funny when I walk past because they now have to have scaffolding over the bar to catch masonry as it falls down. So you can't over go... The, like the bar and the pub. Yeah, the Westminster. So it's, it's outdoors. There's one on the riverside. Yeah. And uh, whenever it, it's so old now that if when it crumbles, you can get hit by a falling stone. So therefore, they've had to put proper netting out all over it just to protect like MPs getting drunk. I'm quite, I'm quite, or or anyone else that may be indulging in non-alcoholic preferences. Journalists uh, can get hit by falling rocks too. There as well. Falling rocks are coming for us all. Okay, that is it from us for today. If you like the program, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was used by Chris Pitt and Marufal Hussain was on sound. I'm James Woolcock. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.